So Daniel literally ends chapter 8 that I'm preaching out of today saying this. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and sick for, many, for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel, after seeing this vision and having it explained to him by the angel Gabriel, his conclusion is, I don't understand. And the preaching team, although there's two guys with their doctorates on it, decided that I would be the one to parse this out for you this morning. So I really appreciate that opportunity. Um, I actually genuinely do. But uh, I don't think Daniel was just, I don't think Daniel was just confused by the nature of the goats and the rams in this vision that he sees. I think he was confused by something else. Uh, let's, let's zoom out and look at the book of Daniel. Um, where's it all set? It's set in the suffering of the people of God in the exile of Babylon, right? So, so Daniel has been looking back to go to Jerusalem. Remember, what is he, where do we see him in Daniel chapter 6? He's praying three times a day, as he's done every day, towards Jerusalem, remembering the promises of God, remembering the, that the temple of God in Jerusalem, his presence, his promises that he's made. And he's wanting to return there. So he sees a vision that shows prolonged suffering for the people of God. And in that vision, he gets a glimpse into the temple. But the glimpse into the temple that he sees is not a pretty one of restoration. It's one of desolation and abomination and violation. And the people of God and God's presence being profaned. And he sees extended periods of suffering for God's people. And I can imagine how unsettling and confusing that would be. Like, how long is this going to happen? How could we go back and then have it taken again? What does this all mean? Suffering, the suffering of God's people is a confusing subject to wrestle with. And I think in some ways it's confusing for us in, in similar ways and maybe in, in some different ways too. Because I know for me, growing up in the church... And in a relatively comfortable life, I can look at the suffering that's promised believers throughout the Bible, not only in Daniel 8, but in all of it. And think, where's my suffering at? How come it's not that hard for me? Suffering can be confusing. So let's look at suffering through, uh, through Daniel 8 this morning. So turn with me to Daniel 8. I want to I begin with a few points of context before we begin studying this. Again, remember, we're in the Babylonian exile. Okay, so Daniel and his friends have been taken from Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire and put there and made to try to be these Babylonian um, wise men. And uh, this is actually during the reign of Belshazzar, uh, the last king that sees the handwriting on the wall. You might remember him from Daniel chapter 5 a few weeks ago. This is during Belshazzar's reign still. So it's kind of rewinding a little bit chronologically. Why is it doing that? Well, there's kind of two halves to the book of Daniel. The first half is all of the stories of Daniel and his friends. And the back half is what's known as apocalyptic literature. Now, Apocalyptic literature is just a type of prophecy that's looking towards the end times. And there's some things that aren't explicitly referring to end times that were fulfilled in other things, but a lot of the tone of Daniel, the latter half of Daniel, is looking towards the end. 
So as we read it, the, these back halves, we need to have that in mind. This back half of Daniel, we need to have that in mind. However, we need to remember also that this is one book. Daniel is one book of the Bible written by the prophet Daniel with intentional, uh, with, in, in an intentional way. And that there are themes that continue both from the stories that we heard in the first half of the book through the latter half of the book as we're reading these visions. Uh, we also have the luxury of history and the luxury of the rest of Scripture. So we'll read a prophecy that seems somewhat, somewhat confusing and muddled on its own, isolated, but we can make sense of a lot of this, this vision from looking at history and how some of this has already been fulfilled and looking at other apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation that, that gives us a picture of what the end will look like. So we're going to be benefiting from both of those in our current context uh, as we read through Daniel 8 today. I'm going to read through the entire chapter. Um, so, yeah, uh, join me in Daniel 8 as I read. It says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is the prov- in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision... And I was at the Uli Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." As I was considering, behold, a male goat came, and from the west, the face of the whole earth, without touching, uh, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when, it was, when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And, in, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It was great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. And I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall, be, sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a, voice, a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, 
Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for me for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with its two horns, these are kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in the place of the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints." By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of evenings and mornings has been told, it is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of God. So, we can see historically how this passage lines up, right? Um, We've already seen, looking at Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 5, how the Medo-Persian Empire overcomes and takes over the Babylonian Empire. And that Gabriel explicitly says that. And this is, remember, this is before that's happened. This is during the reign of Belshazzar. So this is before that's happened. So we, that, that gives us a place in history to know where we're at and then to look forward and say, okay, that's, the, that's an event that's coming. It gives us a, 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 historical landmark, uh, a historical landmark, but Gabriel doesn't really focus on that in his interpretation to Daniel of this media Persian empire. Instead, he says, then there's a king of Greece with a great horn who takes over most of the world that no one could stop. And we can know from history who this great king of of Greece was, that it was Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great took over most of the world. This is what it seems to be, anyways. Uh, It seems pretty clearly to line up with that. Then, after Alexander the Great died, there was four kings that came in his place, just like the four kings that are described here. And these kings were, had a divided empire. And out of one of those kingdoms came a king named Antiochus IV. And his rule became greater. And he created many atrocities and abominations against God's people. And he really seems to be the king of this, this horn that gains prominence in the latter days. So a lot of this is referring to Antiochus IV. So I'll, I'll, I'll spend some time talking about Antiochus um, just by what we know of him historically uh, and even what's spoken of him in a, an apocryphal book named uh, the, the Book of Maccabees. So uh, I, I'm not going to be teaching from the Book of Maccabees, but I'm going to be talking about Antiochus and what he did a little bit. So Antiochus Epiphanes was his name, and he was a king of Greece. And during the Greek 
occupation of these countries during their conquest of most of the world, there was a process they went through as they conquered stuff called Hellenization. And it was making things Greek, right? So they would go in, they'd teach the Greek language, they'd teach the Greek culture, they'd give the Greek economy, and they'd move on to that. Everything was kind of planted in Greek stuff. Uh, they weren't just attached because they had been conquered, but they were also now given all of these Greek tools to go about their lives and become Greek. And it benefited a lot of people. Uh, even to, it, it was stuck around so well that even hundreds of years later when Jesus came, the, the, land, the language of most of the world was still Koine Greek. That was this Hellenization process. So Antiochus IV was known to have been passionate about this Hellenization, and even to a degree that was greater than Alexander the Great's. He went after religious um, religions and worship of different gods because they clearly it was showing that if you were worshiping another god, you weren't becoming like the Greeks. And he saw specifically in the Israelites how there was this de dedication to their god, and he wanted to make sure that they, that was done. He wanted them to become Greek, and he realized that as, they, as long as they were dedicated to their god, they were not becoming Greek. So how did he do that? He banned circumcision. And if you don't know about circumcision, that is the, the, the um, mark of the Jewish people that was given to Abraham when Abraham was promised that a descendant would come through him which would bless all the nations back in the book of Genesis. And that sign being carried on by the Israelite people meant a continual, a continual hope that God's promises would be fulfilled. And he said, forget about God's promises. Circumcision, that's done. I don't want you to have that mark anymore. And he also banned sacrifices from the temple. And if you think about all of the Jewish holidays even, just alone the holidays, not just the regular worship and communion that they had with God at the temple, but think about the holidays like Passover or the Day of Atonement, which were significant in the life of a Hebrew person that represented their salvation by God or their, 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 a right relationship that they had with God. These sacrifices were significant in the life of a Jewish person. So to ban them was... was desecrating their religion. And then on top, he doesn't just stop there. He marches into the temple, into the holy place of God, and he takes a pig, which was, according to the law, like a very, a very distinct sign of impurity. It was like the Gentiles ate the pig. That was, that was a, a distinction of uncleanliness. He takes the pig, he hangs it up, and he roasts the pig in the temple, in this holy, pure place. And not only does he roast it, but he roasts it in an offering to Zeus. This is known as the abomination of desolation. He desecrates the temple. It's a complete, the message that was meant to be sent was it was a violation of God's people. In history, you can see how clearly this lines up with kind of what Daniel, what this uh, prophecy in Daniel 8 is talking about, right? It's pretty clear that this is, I mean, he, he stops the regular burnt offerings that was taken away from him, and the, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Uh, it says transgression that makes desolation. I mean, it's pretty clear that this is what is being referred to in large part by Daniel 8. Why did Antiochus go through all of those efforts to make those what was, he, what was he communicating as he was making those, those desolations and coming after the people of God? 
first of all, he was communicating that he wanted them not to be in communion with God. They didn't, he didn't want them to have a relationship and to, to have uh, a meeting with God. They didn't, they didn't want, he didn't want them to feel like God's presence was with them. So he goes to the place where he, they believe God's presence meets them on earth in the temple, and he desecrates that place. He shuts it off. He, he cuts the line, in a sense. He's, I, don't want you, I don't want you feeling like you're connected to God at all. And not only that, but he wants to assert his dominance over God. He thinks, you're hoping that this God is going to come and fulfill his promises to you, that one day he'll make you into a great nation that's going to bless the whole earth? Let me show you what your God can do. And he makes a challenge to this God by, by violating him in the most clear sense. He wants to show his dominance over God. So he wants to cut them off from God's presence and show his dominance over God. Why does he do that? Again, it's for this process of Hellenization that they would just not be distinct, that they would be more like the Greeks. That's why he does it, so that they would be more Greek and less distinct. That sounds pretty familiar, a lot of those themes, to what we've already seen in the book of Daniel, right? You can make some, some really clear comparisons, right? Being cut off from God's presence. Remember, this is the backdrop of the book of Daniel. They're in the Babylonian exile, and even Daniel, as he's a 90-year-old man, under the rule of the Persians, he's still looking forward to Jeru looking back to Jerusalem three times a day, praying to be restored to Jerusalem. Or maybe that wasn't his prayer, but he's praying with hope towards God's presence and his and fulfillment of his promises. And him being in exile was separating him from that place. And you think of these kings too. The the things that these we've seen these kings done already in the book. Of, of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? He erects a statue to himself, and he says, if you don't bow down and worship this statue, I'll destroy you. And he, that when they don't bow down and worship the statue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he threatens to throw them in the fire. He throws them in the fiery furnace. Or Belshazzar, he wants to assert his dominance over God as well, too, doesn't he? What does he do? He takes all of the things, all the ornaments from the temple, and he, he has a feast in them uh, and that's in dedication to his god, Marduk. Again, to show a violation of this god. He didn't just want to, to worship his god, but he wanted to show your god can't do anything now. It was an assertion of dominance over God. And it was also that they would fall in line too, right? Like if you look back to Daniel 1, they, they didn't eat the same food. They, that, was, that was their way of being distinct, but they were supposed to fall in line. Or they were supposed to fall down and bow to when that, that horn sounded and uh, worship that statue. Or Daniel was supposed to go through the king as a mediator of prayer in Daniel 6 and instead prayed to God himself. That they just wanted them over and over again to just fall in line and be Babylonian or be Persian. To stop being distinct. So it's a clear theme that we suffer because we're distinct. Jesus suffered because he was distinct. He was not who they wanted him to be. He came to the Jewish people who were awaiting a Messiah, and he was not who they wanted, uh, who they wanted him to be. In Isaiah 53.3, it calls him a man despised and rejected. He was not who 
they wanted him to be. And because he wasn't who they wanted him to be, they cut him off. He was God's presence with us, right? It said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus refers to himself as the temple, right? He says, I'll destroy this temple and raise it up again in three days. He was the presence of God with them. And they said, we don't, we're not interested in it. We want to remain the way we are, and that's messing with the way we are, so we're going to cut that off. We're going to destroy the temple. And they wanted to show their dominance over him. They didn't just want to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to get rid of him in the most humiliating way possible. So they hung him on a cross. And the law clearly says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And they hung over him a sign that said, king of the Jews. And they mocked him while he was on that cross and said, come on down from there. They wanted to assert their dominance over them because he wasn't the person they wanted him to be. He was distinct. He was who God had intended him to be. He was the Messiah God attended, not the Messiah that they wanted him to be. He was distinct. And even as we look forward to the end times, because that's, there's, there's a lot of tones about the end times in Daniel 8. While it's largely referring to Antiochus, what does Gabriel say in verse 17? He says, O son of man, that vision is for the time of the end. Again, in verse 18, he says, it refers to the appointed time of the end. In verse 27, uh, in 26, he says, The vision of evenings and mornings has been told, that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And uh, it sounds like while it referred to Antiochus, there was also another fulfillment of it in, in um, the book of Revelation. We can see some of that. There's a king much like Nebuchadnezzar that rises up in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 13, um, it talks about a king who rises, like a beast that rises up and takes over the world. And he makes a statue to himself and he says, bow down and worship me or you'll be killed. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar, right? Or there's this king, uh, there's this prostitute, this nation, this great city that rises up in, um, that's described in Revelation 17 called Babylon the Great. Remember, Daniel's in Babylon. He's in exile to Babylon. And this, this Babylon the Great drinks from this cup full of the blood of the saints and the abominations against God. And I think really if you look at Babylon the Great as, uh, in Revelation 17 and 18, it, she refers to the general kingdom of man making themselves great compared to God. She's the representation not just of one city and of one place, but of the kingdom of man that is standing against God and making themselves great and saying you need to be like us and become and fit in with what we're doing. You can't that 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 we are greater than God and making themselves great in uh, to in the face of God. Uh, and that's what's that's. The, all of those sufferings that, that are promised under Babylon the Great, under this beast, that's what's, that's what's promised in our future as believers. Even we can remember in simpler terms where Jesus says, in this life you will suffer. Like It's a promise for us as believers. Even what, what was read earlier by Laura, that the saints are going to suffer. There's, a, there's just an expectation of suffering. So again, we've already established from Daniel 8, from the book of Daniel, from the, the example of Jesus and from the scriptures, and our future hope that suffering is just going to be a theme of the people of God. And, Jesus, and Daniel, as he looks in this vision, he sees extended suffering for many days. And we, you might think, like, where's our suffering? 
Why am I not suffering right now? As you read Daniel 17 and 18, it goes on to describe this Babylon the Great that we suffer under. And, uh, and it describes her destruction, too. And you wouldn't believe it, but the kings of the world, they don't mourn when she falls. Or they, they, don't, they don't rejoice when she falls. They mourn when she falls, when this Babylon the Great falls. They weep over her, this terrible person drinking blood and abominations against God is wept over at the end of times. They lament because of loss of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine purple linen, costly wood, ivory, bronze, iron, cinnamon, spice, wine, olive oil, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, and slaves. Revelations 18, 12 through 13. The merchants of the sea look into her and think, we can no longer trade in her, and they weep because they've lost their trade in Revelation 18, 12 through 13, or 17 through 19. There's an old idiom that says, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Maybe one reason that the enemy isn't coming against us right now with intense suffering it's because we're being presented by the adulteress herself with a big tablespoon of honey. That we're, instead of being persecuted by Babylon the Great, we are being groomed by her. Here's something important to remember in light of the suffering of God's people, is that God conquers his enemies. That's, it's not just that God sets up suffering, it's that God destroys his enemies. He conquers his enemies. He ends the suffering, right? In small ways and in the large grand story of everything, that's what God is setting up, right? We look at Antiochus. You know, he, uh, he, was, he was in the temple for a time. He, he had his time to shine for those 2,300 days and evenings, but Antiochus was removed from the temple. We even know historically how it happened with the Maccabees. This group of Jewish people came and reclaimed the temple and rebelled against him. We can see that time and time again with Daniel that God shows that his presence is with his people. That who's there when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace, but one that appears to be like a son of man. Or that when there's mysteries that no one in Babylon can solve, that it's only those who God is with. And they can clearly see God is with these people. Over and over again, it's, it becomes blatantly clear that even though they've done their best to try to separate these people from their God, they can't separate them from their God because their God is with them. Jesus, after he suffers, what does he promise to us but his presence forever? He says in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. No matter what, even though they try to destroy our king, he says they can't separate me from you. I'm with you always to the end of the ages. And their time is set. The kingdoms of this earth are set. Their time is set in stone. Right? We see clearly Babylon had a time set in stone. Remember when Belteshazzar was having his party and Daniel comes in and he says, here's the interpretation to that hand, weighed, weighed, wanting, taken. That you've been weighed by God and you've been found wanting. 
You think you're going to challenge him? Your throne ends tonight. Or he shows the end of the Persians, or he shows the end of Alexander the Great and Antiochus, and he shows the end of all of those things. Jesus gave the grave three days. He said, I would, yeah, it looked like he was overcome for a second, didn't he? But no, he rose again in three days. The evil has a set end date, too. Suffering has a set end date. Babylon the Great will be thrown down with great violence. She will be destroyed. Her date is set. And that's maybe the most prophesied about date in the entirety of all Scripture, is that day when she gets thrown down. The end of things, when God destroys the world, and he he comes in and uh, brings his final redemption for his people. So, we can see clearly... That the pattern is not just that the people of God suffer, but that God conquers over his enemies and that their day is set. And that day is coming. That final day is coming. Daniel saw a long ways off, and it might be a long ways off, or it might be soon. We don't know when that final day is coming. But my question to you is, in light of everything we've looked at today, do you want it to come now? Is there something in your heart that's like, I want Jesus to come back, but maybe not during my lifetime. Let me enjoy this place a little bit. I'm having a good time right now. Maybe he could hold off for a bit, not come back so soon. Let me ask it in a different way. What would you weep for when Babylon the Great falls? Is there a comfort or a good that you're holding so precious in your heart that, you're, that it's preventing you from awaiting the destruction of the enemy of God. There's this miracle that happens. You know, there's a, a good analogy I thought of this weekend. Uh, I was watching um, the deposition of Mark Zuckerberg, of all things, uh, this Friday night, and uh, he was just, he's the founder of Facebook, and he was explaining... What, what happened with Facebook. He said, when I created Facebook, all I wanted initially was to make it the most efficient tool possible for connecting people. So we just went at it with tenacity to make it more efficient and better and better. And we, left no, we, didn't, we weren't concerned about making protections because we assumed it would be used for good. But our assumptions were wrong. Isn't that clear that the world looks at Babylon the Great and they see all the good things happening on there and they think the world is mostly a good place with mostly good people and they make this assumption. And that's what Mark Zuckerberg thought was happening. And then he realized that, oh, no, when you make a good, efficient tool for people to show their humanity, that tool will be used efficiently and effectively and increasingly more and more evil because that's what exists in humanity. This world is not a generally good one. It is one that's totally broken. And when we see our sin, then when the grace of God comes to us and allows us to see our sin and our brokenness and our need for a Savior, He also should show us that this world is a broken place and not just in need of a little sprucing up. It needs a total, it needs to be totally remade. The evil of this world needs to be destroyed. God needs to conquer over His enemies. It talks about the the saints in Revelation 19 not mourning, 
when, this, when Babylon the Great is thrown down. In Revelation 19, it says that they watch as she's thrown down into the pit, and they say, hallelujah, let her smoke go up forever and ever, because they're happy the city of this world is gone. Because it means the redemption. It means then that the presence of God is with his people forever. Because right after that city of that great Babylon is destroyed, John, the Apostle John, is allowed to go over the mountain and he looks and he sees the new Jerusalem. The people of God being presented to Christ to be unified with him forever. And that's the city we're longing for. That unity with Christ. So as we look towards that date, the Bible gives us two clear instructions. Jesus in Mark 13 tells us to stay awake. Don't be lulled to sleep by the siren song of the comfort of this world. And in Revelation 18.4, it says there's a call for us to come out of her. And if you recognize yourself taking comfort and enjoyment in Babylon the Great, and setting your hopes there. If you ask your, if, you, if your mind and your heart is inclined to want God to tarry because you're just enjoying this Babylon the Great so much right now, run, get out of her. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Get out. Because we long for a city. That hands have not made. We're going to sing this song in, in reflection and closing now um, as the, the worship band comes up. Um, at the, second, the second chorus goes like this. No hours should be wasted in seeking our joy, in placing our hope in what will be destroyed. We look for a city that hands have not raised. We long for a country that sin has not stained. I look forward to singing that with you. Let me pray.